Welcome to part three of the Network 5 Emergency Medicine Journal Club environmental episode, Land, Air and Sea. So now we've moved on to air. So we've got Dr. Harry Hong presenting a paper, which is a, a very interesting one. Parachute used to prevent death and major trauma when jumping from aircraft. Randomized control trial by Ye et al. Thanks, Elise. I'll label it the parachute trial from now on. But essentially, they're looking at parachute use to prevent death and major trauma when jumping from an aircraft. And it is a randomized control trial. So the purpose of this article was to evaluate efficacy of parachutes in preventing either death or major traumatic injuries. Up to now, guidelines for parachute use are based mainly on biological plausibility and expert opinion which in our scientifically oriented mind is equivalent to, you know, what is colloquially known as bro science. Um, so this study essentially aims to provide evidence for use of parachutes in a randomized setting. The hypothesis they were testing was that the parachute use is superior to the control in preventing death and major traumatic injury. The primary outcome was the composite of death and major traumatic injury defined by an injury severity score greater than 15 within five minutes of impact. And the injury severity score is a score between zero to 75 based on injuries to different anatomical sites. Secondary outcomes included death and major traumatic injury assessed at 30 days after impact and quality of life 30 days after impact as assessed by the short form health survey. So the study design was designed to include participants in between September 2017 and August 2018, mainly within the setting of USA. Prospective participants were approached and screened by study investigators on commercial or private aircraft while mid-flight. Participants were typically passengers seated close to the study investigator. Due to the difficulty in enrolling patients at several thousand meters mid-air, the pool of potential participants was extended to members of investigative team, friends and family. Inclusion criteria was age of 18, those deemed to be rational decision makers and those who are willing to participate. And obviously most participants are study investigators. Participants were randomized using block randomization with a block size of two. And once randomized, the participant investigators were not blinded. In terms of the data collected, they included demographic characteristics, so age, gender, so on, medical history, and only the relevant medical history, including acrophobia, which is the fear of heights, previous and family history of parachute use, and their frequent flyer status. Flight characteristics, including carrier, velocity, altitude, make and model of the aircraft, seating section, and whether the flight was international or domestic, were also important data points that were collected. With the analysis, in order to achieve 99% power, 20 participants were targeted. In the end, 92 participants were screened, 69 were excluded, mainly due to them declining, ultimately leaving 23 participants to be randomized. These students t-test and fishes exact tests to determine the differences in outcomes in the trial arms. In addition, given that so many participants declined to participate. To assess the factor behind the unwillingness, comparisons were made between the characteristics of individuals who were screened but chose not to enroll versus those who enrolled. In terms of the results, between the intervention group, which were 12 participants, and the control group, including 11 participants, 
the baseline characteristics were generally similar. Among the participants randomized to the intervention arm, parachute did not deploy in 100% of the cases due to the short duration and altitude of the flight. Among those randomized to the control arm, none crossed over the intervention arm. In analyzing the outcomes, there were some surprising results. There was no significant difference in the rate of death or major traumatic injury between the treatment and the control arms within five minutes of ground impact. So 0% for the parachute arm compared to 0% of the control arm. Same was observed after 30 days, again, 0% of both arms. Health survey was also similar for both arms. Subsequent subgroup analysis showed no significant differences in the effect of parachute use on outcomes when stratified by type of aircraft or previous parachute use. Now, in comparing participants who enrolled versus who did not, most characteristics were similar across the two groups, except just a few minor exceptions. Participants were less likely to be on a jetliner compared to a biplane or a helicopter. So 0% compared to 100% of those who decided to participate. Participants who did participate were at lower altitudes, 0.6 meters, compared to those who didn't want to participate were at 9,146 meters. And those who did participate were traveling at a much slower velocity, zero kilometers per hour versus 800 kilometers per hour. So in summary, this study was the first randomized clinical trial evaluating the efficacy of parachutes. And it's quite revolutionary in that it showed no difference between the treatment and control arms. Obviously, despite the decades of anecdotal evidence in support of parachute use, the evidence from this study reveals that these observations are vulnerable to selection bias and confounding. As mentioned earlier, a very minor caveat of the study is that despite most of the characteristics between those who enrolled versus those who did not being very similar, they may have been at a lower risk of adverse events uh, due to having jumped from a lower altitude and from aircraft that were essentially not moving at all. Discretion is needed when extrapolating these results to those jumping out of vehicles that are actively moving and flying. But from our evidence, it's safe to conclude that routine parachute use when jumping from stationary dog vehicles should be discouraged. I didn't really know when to take off my sarcasm hat, but <laughs> I guess I'll take it off now. I guess what this study mainly wanted to point out was that in research, sometimes randomized control trials are taken as the gold standard for valid research, but obviously you have to critically appraise each paper instead of just skimming through the abstract and making your conclusions from there. I guess that is the major strength of this paper. Weak points, I don't think I really need to go into <laughs> weak points. I guess there were some issues with selection of the study participants, wouldn't you say? <laughs> A minor issue. Thank you for flying us through that paper. I don't believe this is the first paper on parachutes that they've investigated. I think there was one in 2003, I think it was, by Smith and Pell investigating parachute use in prevention of death and major trauma in the context of gravitational challenges. Very interesting, very funny sorts of papers and very interesting comment on our evidence-based medicine randomized control trials. I'd like to ask Dr. Coggins about some principles about well-constructed randomized control trials. Bias that's jumping out for me here is the flat pack furniture bias, or also known as the IKEA bias. So when you go to IKEA and you buy your Malm bedside table and you assemble it, you've got buy-in into that table and you love it more because you made it, or you feel like you made part of it, even though it was made in Bulgaria in a factory. And 
came with various screws. There's never more screws than you need, by the way, which I always find amazing. And you lose the screw or you over screw it, it can be a problem. Anyway, there's the IKEA bias, the flat pack furniture bias. So in this study, a lot of the people who enrolled were actually either family members or actual investigators. They're overly invested in there. So potentially a lot of the outcomes may have been distorted. And then of course you have the selection bias too. I think it tells us a lot about some of the weaknesses of evidence-based medicine as we understand it today, selecting patients. And if it was a cancer drug and you select the wrong patients into that study, you need to know what the people you've missed are. So this is this whole prisma diagram, flow diagram thing. You need to know something about the characteristics of the patients you don't enroll. The classic one for emergency medicine is the stroke thrombolysis. You know, 86-year-old comes in with a stroke and you know that the patients that have been in the studies have been in their 50s and 60s and they've done well. What's the risk to this 86-year-old from bleeding or whatever? So there's lots of issues around selection bias in studies. They tend to favor male patients, white people. And then when we apply the evidence to the non-cis white male population, it can run into all kinds of problems. And I think this paper just graphically illustrates the problems with randomized controlled trials. The two big ones in this case are the selection bias and the IKEA bias. But these apply to any randomized controlled trial you might see out there, whether it be cancer therapy, whether it be stroke thrombolysis or whatever it might be. So I think for me, there's a lot to learn from this paper. Not so much about jumping out of an airplane. I would prefer to have a parachute personally, uh, but more to do with the kind of the jovial take on evidence-based medicine or the lack thereof in many of the studies we end up reading. Andrew, as Elise already alluded to, this study was the response to the landmark systematic review in 2003 that went viral before viral was a thing and by Smith and Pell. I'm looking at the parachute used to prevent death and major trauma in relation to gravitational challenges. Now, to quote that original study, they said, we think that everyone might benefit if the most radical protagonists of evidence-based medicine organized and participated in a double-blind randomized placebo-controlled crossover trial of the parachute. So before I go and throw myself off a building without a parachute in the name of science, how common are parachutes in medicine? Uh, there's a lot of quackery in medicine, as Ben Goldacre would often point out. And so we have parachute-esque therapies floating around all over the place, and we have eminence-based medicine often trumping evidence-based medicine. So it's always going to be a case of being able to balance eminence-based medicine and evidence-based medicine in your own practice. And sometimes when you know something is not quite right or it doesn't fit in with necessarily the what you think the best evidence is, is picking the battles on those things. You know, if someone is choosing Ticrelegor over Clopidogrel because the drug lunch they had last week, I don't know if fighting about that particular issue is going to be really efficacious when it comes to your next cardiac patient that you're coming in. If you're going to fight with the cardiologist about the particular choice of antiplatelet agent based on the biases that they probably have. So I think in medicine, to be cynical, parachutes are very common. I want to use that analogy. It's a battle between eminence-based and evidence-based medicine. And it's always going to be challenging when you're working in emergency medicine to know when to battle things that you think are maybe wrong when the studies are biased. And the classics, I think, are stroke thrombolysis, where we're often having that conversation about 90-year-olds getting thrombolized, and you're kind of looking at it and you're thinking, maybe it's not the best idea. Or when you look at certain kind of antiplatelet agents or NOAX and expensive drugs for diabetes, all being turned around several years later, and then they find that when they're actually put into the real world's practice, they maybe don't work as well as they were initially shown to be because of selection bias, because of IKEA bias, because of every other bias you can think of, including drug lunch bias. I completely agree. This paper to me was a slight, you know, refutation to that sort of principle applied in that original paper of we don't need to obsessively chase randomized controlled trials. One of the key discussion points here is around equipoise. And specifically, they talk about the difficulty in retrospectively trying to find equipoise once something is already a mainstream therapy. In other words, if the standard of care already for dealing with chest pain is giving ticagrelor, even though we have never actually studied ticagrelor. And this is obviously a completely made up 
analogy, then you can't say that there's equipoise between giving Ticagra law and not giving Ticagra law because giving Ticagra law has been involved in generating all the outcomes that we already have. I think one of the things that this paper is suggesting is that when a new intervention is being rolled out, that's the best time to have equipoise for that intervention because we don't actually know if it works yet and it hasn't actually been integrated into our practice yet. Could you tell us a little bit about equipoise and how we determine equipoise in medical research? Well, equipoise is going to be a, another controversial topic, which I think will depend on your opinion. But anytime you have a standard of care and a new therapy, you generally would need to compare those sort of in observational terms. And then if the you know, larger observational studies that are out there comparing the two seem to kind of be unable to separate the, the treatments in obvious terms, then you might want to go and actually try to take out all the confounders, which would occur in observational studies. So that, you know, the more, more retrospective and the more observational studies you have, the more likely there are to be confounders that which would affect things. And so when there's not such obvious signal from observational studies of therapies that you can determine the difference, and I guess parachutes would be an example of, it seems fairly obvious and there's face validity that you should use a parachute, then when things are marginal and you want to eliminate confounders, you need to go into randomized control trials. So equipoise would generally be defined as we're not really sure which one of these works better. We have reasonable evidence that they're fairly similar. There's no obvious difference on the face between them. Therefore, we should sort of test it in with a, a study design that would eliminate confounders. And this study example here from the BMJ with the, the parachute study basically shows you how not to do a randomized control trial, doesn't it? Because it basically, the selection bias, the MacGyver bias, the, the IKEA bias, and so on and so forth. So well-designed randomized control trials are on the population of relevance to you where you work are really what you need. And unfortunately, this study kind of broke all the particular rules. But I think going back to the equipoise question is like, you don't, shouldn't be studying something in a randomized control trial unless there is equipoise. And the easiest way to determine equipoise quickly in large numbers is to get observational data. And you know, if there's a big gap between parachutes and no parachutes, which I would imagine there would be 99% versus 1%, then probably just don't do the randomized control trial. I think that's entirely fair. You touched on another important topic, which is face validity. Now, I think the general population very easily is able to appreciate face validity for something like a parachute and, you know, so like in our medical profession. How easy is it to conjure face validity when it comes to coming up with a new medical intervention? I think face validity is a term that's maligned by methodologists, right? So I wouldn't be writing a paper up using face validity and I probably wouldn't use the word, but I think some concepts are so obvious, I suppose that you could say, well, this is fine. This is right for prime time and right for application. I think what the problem is if you say, if you take a, a new high stakes examination, like an OSCE exam or whatever it's called, and then you say this is kind of valid based on comparison to something else it can using face validity and that kind of it tends to be applicable to medical educational topics and what have you and people just kind of assume obviously is good because it looks good and it makes sense and i made it up and i'm an expert so there's face validity which would be maligned by methodologists which is basically the opinion-based face validity and then there's face validity which is the things that are just kind of obvious i think if you're actually going to take a deeper dive into validity testing validity can change over time so whether a tool or an assessment is valid might change over time it might change in a different context context. And there may be more than one way to sort of study or measure validity. So, you know, validity is a very controversial topic. If you say something, a test is valid, I think you need a lot more than face validity when it comes to what we usually apply. So in an OSCE exam or in a, in a particular test, like a D-dimer, if it's valid or not, you need much more robust ways of measuring that. And that robustness will actually be determined on multiple things, including the actual study you're doing on your population, but also can you extrapolate that to other populations? So I think face validity is a word I wouldn't recommend people use, but I think in this particular study, it's a good example of where something's pretty obvious. You could probably say, hey, it's 
pretty obvious. Don't jump out of an airplane without a parachute. And there's plenty of examples in medicine where that's true, but there's also lots of examples of in medicine where we're told something by a colleague and you're just like, I don't think that is as obvious as you're saying, but you believe it so strongly that it's compelling. I almost think that face validity is something that you apply in the opposite direction. So I, I get concerned sometimes when people use face validity as a justification not to do research. However, I'm very interested in how someone's research that they've produced applies to my face validity, i.e. Um, do the results of this trial actually feel real to me in the patients that I'm seeing? Does the fact that you know a 50-year-old does well with thrombolysis apply well to the 87-year-old that I'm seeing today? So yeah, that's, that's a really excellent point. Should we be doing a randomized control trial of washing your hands prior to seeing a patient or after a patient with clostridium difficile? I don't know. It seems <laughs> obvious to me that we should be washing our hands. Uh, but then there's a marginal examples that you've, you've already mentioned with um, certain unpronounceable drugs, which I'm not going to attempt to pronounce. I think the fact that RCTs provide the kind of top level of evidence and everyone wants the top level of evidence seems to make people fixate a little bit on RCTs. I do worry that we often throw away other research that, that isn't an RCT and probably quite rightly isn't an RCT for a number of reasons. Maybe there's um, you know, a rare outcome or a rare you know, intervention or, or, or similar. And I, I do worry that we've fallen into this culture of accepting RCTs as the only form of evidence-based medicine, and then everything else has to be kind of an eminence-based approach because everything in the middle is viewed as lacking in evidence. I don't know how we can move away from that. And I think we're guilty of it too. When we present a lot of our papers here, you know, even if they're papers that maybe are less technically good, you know, we, we are often presenting RCTs because it's an RCT. That's a really important point. And I think the same for systematic reviews. I don't know if anyone else has sort of observed this, but I've observed that there seems to be like a flood of systematic reviews at the moment. Like the last five, 10 years, there's a systematic review coming out and absolutely everything. And it's held as the be all and end all of evidence. It's like, you know, stop the press, don't look at anything else. We've got a systematic review now. So everything is good, exactly what you need to know. Ultimately, high quality, well-conducted cohort study, you know, even some a study using retrospective data might actually yield more insights than the poorly conducted RCT or the systematic review that comprises a bunch of case reports. So ethically with this kind of equipoise question that we should be randomizing people sort of in a almost an observational way. So Ben Goldecker talks about how we don't know which statin is best. And the only way to determine that is when the GP randomized at the point of prescription. So effectively you say, I want a statin for cholesterol and you press a button and it will dispense randomized to a statin. The patient doesn't necessarily know which one they're getting, but they're going to get a statin. So much in the same way, when we think about doing these studies, I agree with Kit's point in principle that we don't need randomized control trials for everything. But if you're going to, if you're going to do randomized control trials, or we agree randomization is a good thing to prevent confounders, then there's lots of ways you can randomize that are not necessarily flipping a coin or exposing a patient um, after consent. You could potentially, you know, cluster randomize, uh, compare two hospitals, whatever you want to do. So there's ways that you can actually match groups quite effectively to get larger numbers in to actually get that evidence where it's, it's not randomized in the traditional sense of the word. And maybe in the future, we need to be randomizing at the point of prescription or randomizing at the point of allocation to a therapy to eliminate observational biases as much as we can. So effectively, we have hyper excellent observational studies because we can actually separate the groups quite well. Uh, and, and, and new ways of randomizing patients could be another way we could get larger numbers of people into much fairer kind of observational groups. Well, one of the points in this paper is that, to quote them again, even the most efficacious of treatments can be shown to 
have no effect if individuals who derive the greatest benefit selectively decline participation. And that was the point, Andrew, earlier, wasn't it, in regards to the oncology trial or the, the Ticagrelor trial, whatever it is, if you have the wrong population. But I wonder, could the opposite also be true when we're appraising studies that show a purported exceptional treatment benefit in a study, you know, population that has a long list of exclusion criteria? If you look at a lot of the evidence that comes in with the things that we do every day in resource bays, emergency providers, it's questionable whether we can apply that to the patient in front of us. It's important to have selection criteria that are really clear, robust, and intelligent in order to have well-matched groups. But the downside, of course, is when you come to extrapolating that, then it can be really problematic. So yeah, I think it's following up your randomized controlled trials, your initial studies with larger observational studies to see what happens in the real world is so important. Go back 10 years for rosiglitazone was given to every diabetic patient and then they discovered it caused heart failure. And that wasn't really picked up in the initial studies because they were so controlled with the, the selection criteria. And then they found when they gave it to the wider population that the glitazone medications actually caused significant cardiac side effects. I suppose it's just having your guard up when there's something news out there, you know, we, we should implement it as best we can, but we need to have appropriate reporting and a good watch over what happens once the thing is in the real world, because the study world is often different to the real world. Yeah, absolutely. One of the most dangerous aspects of pre-hospital and retrieval medicine is winching rescue and helicopters. And this paper as facetious as it was, reminded me a little bit of those sorts of inventions. And so I was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what air rescue actually involves and how you keep rescuers safe and how you keep the patient safe in that scenario. I haven't done any retrieval jobs for about 10 years, but when I did them, it involved training. So there's a six month job and you did a month of training. So I don't know any other job, you get a month of in induction. So the safety comes from being well-trained and they say that you in emergency medicine or any situation, you tend to uh, not rise to the challenge, but you tend to fall back to the level of training that you have. So with the winching side of things, I think we did the winching in and out of the helicopter on the ground several times and then into the actual helicopter. So when I did my one job in my um, eight months of retrieval or so, it was a conscious patient in the basket and I felt well-trained to do this winch. Um, so it didn't feel unsafe. Although there was a five ton twin engine thing above my head, making lots of noise with downdraft and I was going into this thing. It didn't feel as scary as it otherwise would have because you felt like you were well-trained and you were kind of overtrained. Like, you know, to spend a month of your six months doing training, you're overtrained. And so if you apply that premise to emergency medicine more widely, there's such a thing as overtraining, particularly in the resus bay. And I think we do. I think if you think of emergency medicine as what we do is we actually spend 90% of our time studying and learning and being examined on the 5% of stuff that we do in the resource bay, whereas 90% of the work we do is probably urgent care, general medicine type stuff. And uh, we probably spend less time being tested on that. That could be a problem in itself. The fact that most of our work is not in resource. Mm -hmm. Most of the things we're tested on are in the resource bay, but I think there is a need for overtraining. And if the reflection I'd leave you with would be, it's good to overtrain and we don't tend to rise to the occasion. We tend to sort of fall back at the level of training that we have. And when it comes to winching, you only feel safe because you've done lots of practice. Thank you for that discussion. Harry, do you have some take-home points related to this paper or from the discussion that we've just had? First take-home point is to actually wear a parachute if you're going to jump off a plane. Don't take your <laughs> medical advice from a sarcastic BMJ article. But the more important take-home points, uh, make sure you critically appraise the papers and don't take it at face value. Check all the biases. In terms of applying whatever's in the study world to real life practice, better pick your battles when comparing what's in the paper versus what can be realistically put into practice. Use your own equipoise and incorporate it with your own beliefs and thoughts before you apply it to the real world. All very relevant points. Thank you very much.
The second interlude will be presented by Associate Professor Andrew Coggins. I just wanted to talk a little bit about how you get better, how you get better at stuff and how we get better at stuff as a team. And as a simulation clinician, and I do like simulation teaching like one day a week, I've spent many years like creating moulage mannequins, far-fetched narratives about what potentially you might see in terms of a diving disaster or someone falling out of an airplane, limbless mannequins. A lot of effort goes into sort of simulation education to teach a small number of people, not very much a lot of the time. And yet every day, somewhere like Westmead, Liverpool, wherever you work, you'll find yourself faced with very busy, fulfilling, interesting, stimulating cases that are real, like much more real than the fake cases we do in the Sim Center. So I always thought, and I've been reflecting in the last couple of years on how insane it is that we spend all this time doing simulation and to teach stuff. And yet in everyday work, we don't actually debrief and talk about the stuff that we're learning. I think we're pretty good individually going home, listening to a podcast about the case that we saw, looking up on EM rap, whatever it might be, and then you know self-reflecting and trying to think about the way that we think. But I think as a group, we don't do that too well. So I think it's really important to think about what's the place of clinical debriefing in that. So clinical debriefing is three types. The first type is the sort of operational thing where you have a quick five minute chat after a case, reflecting on what your experience of it was, comparing it to others' experience and sharing your collective knowledge, wisdom or lack thereof about that case. Then there's this sort of awesome and amazing or M&M type debriefings where you kind of have your fingers pointed at each other or hug each other about how amazing you are. And that type of debriefing is fine, but it sort of is, tends to occur sometime later and doesn't really have psychological safety with it because you're kind of having your care critique in an M&M or an awesome and an amazing kind of space. And then the last type of debriefing is an emotional debriefing. So your emotional debriefing is like your supportive debriefing where there's been some violence or there's been a really bad outcome. And I think those debriefings are kind of separate to each other and they're all completely different as much as McDonald's is different to Hungry Jack's is is different to KFC. There are similarities between the fact that they're all fast food restaurants, but they're all completely different and you would all recognize them as different. And I think pulling those apart into separate entities is important because I think what happens, we miss out on our everyday operational conversations and debriefing because what we, firstly, we don't have time, but secondly, we tend to think of debriefing as an emotional thing where, you know, I'm going to re-traumatize myself or I'm going to cry or I'm going to go away from it not feeling better, if anything, feeling worse. Or I might think of it as more like an M&M where I'm going to be critiqued from my management. In fact, I think debriefing is a dirty word and perhaps we should be thinking of calling it maybe an operational conversation or thinking of it as a post-event discussion, in which case that's much safer and we end up not having to waste our time making up simulations to create learning. And in fact, what all we do is we just get in the habit of talking to each other about the way that we're thinking and sharing our wisdom with each other on the floor and just making a five minutes after a recess case to have a quick chat. And then you'd be surprised if you get in that habit, how much you might learn. So basically my reflection and my monologue essentially is just, just encouraging everybody who's listening to think about debriefing as a, not a scary thing, not as a dirty word and think about operational conversations in your workplace has been really useful for learning and improving your practice. important point about that emotion being caught up in that debriefing process. I know personally, my experiences with reflection haven't always been the greatest. So we're always forced to do uni assignments on reflection. And the majority of the time it would be 
let's get drunk and just pour out our feelings, which now I know on reflection of that when I'm older and more sensible. Reflection does actually form a very important part of our clinical practice and how to improve as a clinician. I don't know whether you guys have experienced that before, that sort of like transition from, oh, this is just another dumb uni assignment that I have to do to, oh, this is actually really useful for my practice. Andrew, that was really valuable. And I think the take home for me is that reflection is not something that can be forced. Debriefing is not a dirty word. It's something that needs to, I think, proactively occur, but in a more natural way. So you've experienced something and it doesn't need to be a traumatic event. It doesn't need to be forced event like a simulation. It can just be your day. You know, we all reflect on our day every day. We go to bed at night and we're like, well, you know, this happened and I feel this about it. And then that happened. So it's not actually as artificial a process as sometimes we make it out to be. If we approach debriefing in a, a bit more of that that sort of a mental model, just at the end of your shift, checking in with your colleagues and being like, do you have any questions? How did you feel about X, Y, and Z that happened? Then perhaps we might be able to get a little bit more out of the debriefing process as opposed to, you know, as you were saying, Andrew, the slightly more forced and slightly more negative mental model of it. Now it's time for the highly anticipated Kit's Corner. Kit, what do you have for us this time? Thanks, Yulise. Once again, I contemplated at length what to discuss in Kit's Corner this week. And as a fan of adventure sports and particularly scuba myself, I thought I could talk about some of the incredible water animals that exist. Do I talk about the fact that a giant squid's food passes through its brain before it reaches its stomach? Or that lobsters have teeth in their stomach? Or do I talk about the blobfish? Everyone loves a blobfish. Or maybe we talk some physics. The fact that because of the limited penetration of some wavelengths in water, blood looks green when you bleed at 30 feet. Instead, though, I've decided to follow the theme appropriately of all of our papers today and talk about evidence. Scuba diving is a risky sport. The Divers Alert Network states that a fatality happens once every 211,864 dives, which is hardly one in a million. But what's the world's deadliest sport? Is it base jumping, perhaps, or skydiving, extreme ironing? Do you know what's often quoted as the world's deadliest sport? Lawn bowls. And I'll let that sink in for a minute. As we know, statistics can lie, 99.3% of them at least. When we look at the deadliest sport, stats matter, and it matters what we mean. Is it the sport in which the most people die playing? Or is it about the proportion? Are there confounders like the age or health of the people that play? My take-home point from this episode, in fact, my take-home point from this podcast series is simple. Beware statistics. That concludes our environmental medicine episode on the Network 5 Emergency Medicine Journal Club. 
We'd like to thank our guests, Drs. Scott Squires, Andrew Coggins, Timothy Silverage, Shaheb Karimi and Harry Hong for coming onto the show. And from myself and the rest of the crew, thank you for joining us. We'd love to hear from you if you want to drop us a line at westmeadedjournalclub at gmail.com or you can also join in the social conversations on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Yeah.